In 2022, the plan was to fund 50 church projects in a year. We ended up raising $4.4 million, enough to fund 80 projects. 54 of those are now complete. Let's take a look. Eighty percent of these churches have doubled in attendance. Ten percent of these congregations have planted other churches. These are people hungry to hear God's word, and it is because you heard the call and rallied for Christ's cause that they can continue to reach their communities. This is God's hand at work in a world desperate for his love. And we're not stopping here. It is because of your desire to make Christ known. Funding and starting new churches beyond these communities is now a part of our general budget. And now, by the end of the year, we will have funded 90 projects. Thank you for your generosity. There is so much in that video to be proud of, isn't there? 90 projects, 90 groups of people, Christians gathering together, needing church facilities, and you guys stepped up and you've been the difference maker. Did you notice that 80% of those congregations, once they got a permanent facility, doubled in size? And some of those groups went off and they started other churches as well that we'll be helping along the way. So exciting things happening. And in 2024, because this is now part of our general budget, we have already scheduled that we'll have our 100th project done sometime mid-2024. So thank you for your generosity and for making a difference in the lives of people that you're never going to meet till you get to the other side of heaven. How exciting is that all right now closer to home if you're not aware Christmas is next weekend all right I'm gonna make sure you understand that you got about seven more days to shop and that's about it and this is our opportunity friends to invite folks to come to our Christmas Eve services all of our different campuses we're gonna put the times up there pick a time actually better yet call a friend and ask them what time works for them and invite them to come. Statistics tell us that 60% of people will say yes to an invitation to come to church. And one thing I know is that no matter the church is large or the church is small, people usually don't just stumble into one. Generally speaking, it's a friend that invites them and says, hey, would you come with me to our Christmas Eve services? They're not against church. They're not against God. They'd be more than happy to come, but they're not going to come cold turkey. They're not going to come on their own. That's too intimidating. That's too scary. But if they had a friend, a friend that would bring them, there's a great chance they'd say, you know what? We want to go to church on Christmas Eve. Thanks for the invitation. We would love to come with you. So come on. This is your week. And on the Sagebrush app, there's those opportunities that says Christmas Eve invites. You can just send it to them via text. It's super easy to do. Let's pack every single service on every single campus. Let's make Jesus known. He is truly the reason for the season. And the reason we celebrate Christmas is because God has entered into our world. God has become flesh and he has dwelt among us. So let's proclaim that to as many people as we possibly can. All right, let's pray, and then we're going to get into the message. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm excited, excited to be a part of a church, a group of people that care about people who are far from you. Lord, they care about their brothers and sisters in Christ overseas who are struggling and who are in desperate need of help. And Lord, you have used these people to step up time and time and time again. And they're making a difference. I, God, I pray they'd never forget they're making a difference. 
for all eternity. And so, Lord, I pray that you continue to bless all those churches that we've had the opportunity to come alongside. And, Lord, I pray that they would continue to be lights in dark places. Lord, this next week as Christmas is coming right around the corner, God, may we be intentional. May you put somebody on our heart that we can invite to be a part. And Lord, we pray that you would go before us and before the invitation, you would soften their hearts and they would say yes. And Lord, we pray that many of those people would finally understand what the meaning of Christmas is all about. That you came, you lived, you died, you rose again so that we wouldn't have to be separated from you in another moment of any day. So God, use us. Use us in ways we never thought possible. Give us courage this next week to make the invitation. Lord, as we open up your word, I pray you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I pray that every word that proceeds from my mouth would come from you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Massachusetts, police were called to a house. There was some suspicious behavior going on there. The suspicious behavior is no one had seen the homeowner at the house for several years. Well, the police came, they knocked on the door, no one answered. They looked into the windows and they saw what appeared to be a dead body on the floor. So they broke into the house and they found a woman, 73 years old, or the best they could tell, 73 years old, because they ascertained that she had probably been dead for four years. Four years in her house becoming mummified. Four years where no neighbor came and knocked on the door. You say, well, how's that even possible? How can someone be so cut off from relationships that nobody would even know that they had died after four years? Was it an accident? Was it a mistake? Well, yes and no. Uh, about a year after no one saw the woman, the, they did call the police and the police called her brother, and the brother said that she had moved into a nursing home. Obviously, he was mistaken. So as a result, the police stopped the mail from coming through the post office, and, and uh, some neighbors up the street decided they would take it upon themselves to keep her yard fresh and, and cut and mowed. But, but four years is an awful long time to be dead. When they found out, the neighborhood couldn't believe it, and yet they kind of could. They said, well, we kind of understand why we wouldn't know much about her. She didn't want anything to do with anybody. We'd try to have conversations with her, and she'd just walk away. She'd shut the door. She didn't want anybody bothering her life. It's sad, but it's not surprising. This kind of thing happens more often than you think. Uh, Ricardo Vincenzo, he was 70 years old. Police got a phone call because there was a busted pipe in his house and the water was flowing out into the street. So they knocked on the door. They saw the TV was still on and they saw what appeared to be a person in a reclining chair watching that TV. But the more they knocked, that person just didn't move. Well, they got to the right angle on the house and they looked in and sure enough, he was dead. Been dead for over a year, sitting there with the TV still on. Here's my question. How can you be surrounded by people and nobody know you? How can someone be surrounded by people and no one has a relationship with them? Nobody seems to care about each other. Whatever happened to neighborhoods just being kind of neighborly? You know, it wasn't always this way. You know that, don't you? 
There was a day and time where, where neighbors actually knew each other, where we, we talked to each other, had relationships with people up and down our streets. But we've become so paranoid, haven't we? And now we kind of push people away and we keep people at an arm's distance because truth be told, we don't really trust anybody anymore. I, this is going to shock some of you young people, but there was a day and age when they would build a house and it wouldn't have an attached garage. Can you believe that? Only detached garages. You know what that meant, don't you? This is before there were garage door openers. That meant somebody had to pull up. They had to get out of their car. Can you imagine? They had to get out of their car. They had to open up the garage door. They had to pull their car in, get out of their car, pull the garage door down, and then they had to walk to get to their house. Now you say, well, that's very inconvenient. And absolutely, you're right that it is. But when they would do all those steps, there were other neighbors doing those steps. And so because they saw each other in the front yard, they would spark up conversations that would build friendships over time, that would have strong relationships as a result. Hey, I don't want there to be any mistake. I love my garage door opener. I'm sure you all that right now. And I'm thankful that my garage is attacked, attached to my house. I, I, I'm very grateful for that. But, but can't we be isolated from everybody else because of that stinking garage door opener? I mean, we pull up if we hit that button. The garage door goes up and we pull in. And before we even turn the car off, we hit the button in the garage door. It goes back down again. We don't have to see anybody. We don't have to talk to anybody. How many times have you looked out the blinds and you saw a bunch of neighbors gathering together and you're like, I'm wondering if the police are coming next. How many times have you thought that to yourself, right? Surrounded by people. Even in this room. Even at your campus. Nobody knows you. Not a friend to anybody, you're all alone, facing life in your own strength and in your own power. And oh, how desperately do we need relationships. We need people who will come into our life and who will love us and who will point us to the best friend of all, Jesus. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Take a look at this. I met Jesus when I was really young, but I don't think it's the Jesus that I know today. Um, I grew up in a really small Catholic community. Jesus, for me, was a God who punishes you, but I'm not sure it was ever presented to me that Jesus was someone you can have an actual relationship with. When I was a teenager, I was really just looking for myself, and I think I went looking for love in all of the wrong places. I left home when I was 17. Um, I moved to, to Albuquerque, I did graduate high school, and I got a full-ride scholarship to UNM for nursing. I wasn't ever exposed to any of the stuff like people in the city were exposed to. I had grown up in such a small town. Before I hit my first semester, um, I got into drugs and alcohol, and I started, uh, I was a stripper. So I started working at a, a local strip club here in Albuquerque, and I slowly started ruining my life. I got pregnant with my daughter when I was 19, and um, I didn't have anywhere to go. I, I knew I was pregnant, and I, I wanted to stop using and, and stop working, because um, I was responsible for another life. I considered adoption. I considered, you know, making sure that she had a life um, with a family or someone that was more worthy than me <laughs> to be her mom. When my daughter was seven, I got diagnosed with cancer. When I came back to New Mexico, just like I had that trash bag when I went home for the first time, 
mine and Eliza's lives were like in boxes in a garage. So we had to start over again. But that's when I met Jessica. I know now that God sometimes puts people in your life in really unpredictable ways. I met Jessica when we were working at the courts together. She told me every day, you should come to church with me. You should come to church with me. I think that if we're supposed to be God's hands and feet, that there's no bigger testimony than looking back at your life and seeing your lowest points and being able to reflect on the good that was there. And that's Jesus, that's love. I think that um, it's people like Jessica that reach out to people like me that kind of save your life. You're never too broken and there's nothing that can ever take you away from God's love. You're always enough no matter how many pieces you come in. He loves you. Thank God for Jessica. Thank God that she reached into somebody else's world, saw somebody who was lonely, saw somebody who was hurting, saw somebody who was on a road, a pathway that's going to lead to destruction, and she entered into their world, and she said, hey, you got to come to church, you got to come to church, you got to come to church. And there, that beautiful girl has an encounter with Jesus Christ. You, you know, after COVID hit, and we were so isolated, we were secluded from each other, do you know that the loneliness charts went sky high? And today, it's estimated through the recent Gallup poll that four out of ten people that you lock eyes with are lonely. Four out of ten people that you lock eyes with don't have any friends. Four out of ten people don't have anybody who looks out for them, no one who cares for them. They're isolated, and they're doing life alone. We are surrounded by these people every single day. Are we reaching out? Do we care about them? I heard a story this past week about a woman named Mammy Adams... Uh, Mammy was an elderly woman who lived in this neighborhood, and she loved the post office that was right around the corner. The people inside were so friendly. Well, she frequented that post office, bought stamps an awful lot, even when she didn't need them. Well, it was Christmas time, and you know how Christmas time is at the post office. You're going to be waiting in a line for a long, long time to mail those packages. So she finds herself in this extremely long line, but she doesn't have any packages. She just has her purse and herself. And there was a nice lady in the line, and she turned around, and, and she said, Hey, uh, what are you in line for? And, and Mammy said, Well, I'm, I'm just here to buy some stamps. And the nice lady said, Well, I don't know if you know this or not, but right over there in the other room, there's a stamp machine. You just put your credit card in there, you put some money in there, and the stamps will come out, and you don't have to be in this long line. And, and that's when Mammy looked at the woman and said, I know, but that machine over there is not going to ask me how my arthritis is. People need people. People need people who enter into their life, people who will care about somebody else. This is how we were made, this is how we were created. Genesis chapter 2, God makes everything that we see. And you know what he says? He says, this is good. But then he looks at Adam after he's named every animal. And he says, this isn't good because there was no one suitable for him. He found himself all alone. So what's God do? He puts him into a deep sleep, takes a rib from Adam's side. He forms a woman. And now there's relationships between two people. And Adam and Eve, they had kids, and then their kids had kids, and so on, and so on, and so on. And what he gives us the opportunity to have is have more different types of relationships along the way. My goodness, even when Jesus walked the face of the earth, he didn't do alone. He did it with other people. He opened himself up to other people. Jesus didn't have to do that. 
He didn't need anybody to help him to accomplish his mission, and yet he chose to do it with others. Of course, you know who I'm talking about. It's the 12 disciples. And weren't they a huge disappointment to Jesus? My goodness, how many times were they fighting over which one of them was the greatest? And you know that had to be annoying. And how many times would Jesus teach some spiritual truth and then afterwards they'd say, hey, Jesus, come over here. We don't understand what you just said over there. Can you explain that to us? And that had to frustrate Jesus too, don't you think? And these 12 men that he had poured his life into for the last three, three and a half years made promises that they wouldn't keep. On the night before Jesus was betrayed, Jesus said, one of you will deny me. Peter said, not me. Everybody else might deny you, but not me. Then a little farther in the passage, it says all the rest of them said the same thing. But you know what happened when the moment of truth came? When the guards came to arrest Jesus, they ran to save their own necks, didn't they? And Jesus was left to face his execution all by himself. My goodness, Judas is the one who betrayed him with the betrayer's kiss. Peter denied knowing him not once, not twice, but three times. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, Thomas didn't believe him. said, lest I put my hand into his his wounds and put my fist in his side, I won't believe that he rose again from the dead. So here's the question we got to ask ourselves. Why in the world did he do it? Why invest himself in other people? Because he was trying to show us the right way to live our life. That even though it's complex and sometimes it's messy and sometimes it doesn't work out the way you hope that it would, people, people, you need those relationships in your life. Do you remember on that night before when Jesus is crucified for the sins of all mankind, he gathers with his disciples in the upper room and what does he say to them? He says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. What's he saying? He says, you got to love one another. you got to care for one another. you got to pray for one another. you got to forgive one another. He goes on, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus looked at the people in that room. He said, this is what I want you to be. I want you to be the most loving group of people the world has ever seen. I want you to display a kind of love for others that the world has never experienced before. I want you to love them in the same way I've loved you. With an in spite of kind of a love. A love that keeps forgiving. A love that keeps enduring. A love that doesn't give up. Boy, if you read the book of Acts, that's exactly the kind of people they were, weren't they? Man, they loved everybody, even people who were persecuting him, even people who were talking terrible about them. And when when the gospel was spread about how Jesus had come and died for our sins and rose again from the dead, and they saw the transformation in these people's lives and the love that was flowing through them, my goodness, everybody wanted to be a part. Do you know that most scholars estimate by by the right before persecution broke loose in Jerusalem that half the city had become followers of Jesus Christ? It's estimated there were 200,000 Christians in Jerusalem alone. Why? The Bible says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Why? Because they had never seen a group of people care about people like this group did. And they had never seen a group of people love one another like this group of people loved one another. 
The Bible says they met together in the temple courts for their large assemblies. And then they met in small groups. They met in homes. And they forged these unbelievable friendships as a result. You see, what, what, what in the world did they do? Well, Acts 2.42 tells us what they did in these small groups. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. Remember I told you during this series that the strongest level of your friendship is based upon what you have in common with another person? So if all you have in common with another person is basketball, they're your basketball friends, when you blow your knee out and you can't play ball anymore, those friends will disappear. It's like work friends, right? Those work friends are with you, but when you change jobs, guess what? You probably leave those friends behind because the only thing you had in common was work. Well, for the early church, they weren't superficial relationships. I mean, they got together and they talked about Jesus. They loved Jesus together. They studied the Word of God together. Do you know how blessed we are to live in a day and time where the Bible is so easily accessible to us? You, you can download the Bible app. You can download the Sagebrush app. My goodness, the Sagebrush app has the Bible, has three different reading plans. Do you realize how blessed you are to have that? Because generation after generation after generation didn't have access to the Bible like we did. I read a story this past week about a, a pastor. It was right after World War II. Poland had just been demolished through the war. So he went in there to try to give them some hope in a hopeless situation. He wanted to share with them the message of Jesus Christ. And so he goes in there, he finds an interpreter, he pays the interpreter, and then he rents the town hall out, then he puts some flyers together, posts the flyers all over town, says, this is what's going on, and believe it or not, people started lining up to hear what this guy had to say. When they heard a foreigner had come to tell them about Jesus, they couldn't wait to hear it. So they lined up, you ready for this? All the way around the street, standing room only in the town hall, and lined up down the street. So the preacher would get up there and he'd preach about the love of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, how God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And when he'd get done with his message, people flocked to the front. They wanted Jesus in their life. Well, they would empty that group out and then they would bring the folks who were outside in the street to come in for the next service and then he would do the same thing. And then they would empty it out, and the group that was outside would enter in. They did this for six and a half hours. Preacher was exhausted. The interpreter was exhausted. He said, I got nothing left to give today. I'm going to go back to my hotel, and I'm going to rest. There were still people outside waiting to, for the next service to start. They're walking through this mob of people, and this elderly man in his 70s comes over and grabs a hold of the preacher's arm and starts tugging on his arm, and he starts saying something to him in Russian. He turns to the interpreter and says, what's he saying? He said, he wants to find out something from you. He has a piece of paper. He wants to know if this is from the Bible. And then the elderly man reached into his pocket, pulled out a cloth, opened up the cloth, and then pulled out this single sheet of paper that was yellow from being used so much. And he gave it to the interpreter, and the interpreter began to read it in English so the preacher could hear it. The preacher said, I know what passage that is. That's in the book of Exodus. You tell him that is from the Bible. So the interpreter said, yes, that is a page of Scripture. And the man said, I knew it. I knew it. I've read this page thousands of times throughout the course of my life. I knew something was different about it. 
And then he looked at the interpreter, and in Russian he asked the question, what comes on the next page? That's convicting, isn't it? We sit here with the Bible app. We sit here with the Bible. You don't have a Bible? Make sure you pick up a Bible, my goodness. And, and, and you can call me naive. I, 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 just, I just believe that you guys probably read the Bible from time to time. I think you know that there's something supernatural when we open up the Bible and God's word just kind of pours out to you and you're like, wow, he spoke to my area of need. He answered my question. The word of God is living and active, isn't it? I think you probably read it two, three times a week. Call me naive. Maybe you don't, but I'm guessing you do. Here's my question. Do you understand it? Because I wonder how many of us started reading the Bible and you're like, I don't get this. This doesn't make any sense. What if you got with a group of people and started studying it with them? What if all those questions you had about the Word of God, you had a safe place to say, hey, what about this and what about that? And that collective group of Christians who have walked with God for all these years could show you what the true answer is to that passage of Scripture. Man, they, they studied the Word of God as if their eternity depended upon it. And they prayed in these groups. These weren't some cow, you know, superficial prayers. They, they, they prayed big, hairy, audacious prayers, calling upon God to do exceedingly abundantly more than anything they ever dreamed or imagined. Can you imagine they're in these homes and, and they're gathered together in these small groups? There's persecution outside those doors. There's death outside those doors. There's imprisonment outside those doors for proclaiming that Jesus has risen again. How do you think they prayed? I think they prayed prayers like God searches. Search us, Lord. Is there any evil way within us? Is there anything that's out of whack with you? Anything that's not pleasing? Reveal it to us so we might repent of it and turn away from it. I think they prayed prayers like God lead us. Lead us where you want us to go. Lead us into the relationships you want us to have. Lead us to the places that you want us to take the light of Jesus Christ. I think they prayed prayers like God use us. Use me in a way I've never been used before. Stretch me, mold me, shape me. Let me be a part of something eternal. Let me be a part of something that's significant. Let me make a difference with the one shot at life that I've been given. Do you pray these kinds of prayers? And for those of you in a small group, do you pray these kinds of prayers together as a group? Do you pour out your hearts before the Lord? Friends, the bond was deep because they studied the Word of God together. They prayed big, hairy, audacious prayers together. Let me give you a second thing. The early church small groups loved each other deeply. Look at what the Bible says. They devoted themselves, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They, they rallied around each other. They had each other's backs. Nobody faced anything on their own. 
And there was a level of vulnerability with this group of people. They were real. Real about their hurts. Real about their struggles. I was reading a book by Darren Whitehead called Rumors of, of God. And in the book, he, he talked about a couple who was reluctant to go to a small group. He said the couple was relatively new to the church when this had happened. And the, 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 the marriage that they had was kind of struggling a little bit. And they came as a result of an invitation of a friend to come to the service. Because they said, you know what, he's talking about marriage and relationships, you ought to come. And, and so the husband kind of comes skeptically with the wife, sits over probably in the cheap seats like a lot of you are sitting right now, just kind of checking things out, un, uncertain of the whole thing. Well, he kind of liked the preacher and kind of liked what he had to say. And the preacher said, you know, y'all, everyone ought to get in a small group, do life together with a group of people. It's a great study, especially for marriage couples, just to get together, read the Word of God together, have some questions answered, form great friendships. Well, the wife was all about it. She said, you know what, we're just not seeing eye to eye lately. Things are just seem distant and disconnected. I want to go to that small group and I want you to come with me. So he's skeptical, he's cynical, he doesn't really want to come, but he does. So he goes to this small group of his wife's friends and they're sitting there in this living room and they're doing sermon-based studies. That's what we do in our small groups. They're sitting around, they're talking about what the preacher had just talked about and there's a bunch of questions and scriptures to look up, going a little bit deeper, you know. So they're talking about relationships, they're talking about marriage, and about halfway through, another couple, a, a young man says, you know as well as I do that years ago I had cheated on my wife, and I thought you guys, when you found out that I had cheated on my wife, I thought for sure you were going to kick me out of the group, that you'd want nothing to do with me, that the church would shun me as a result. He said, but I'm here today because when you found out what I was doing, you lovingly confronted me. And you told me about how Jesus could change my life. And through the course of months, you stood with my wife and I. You didn't cast us aside. You didn't give us some judgmental look as if we were less than or make us feel worse than we already were feeling. You came along and you supported my wife. You supported me. You didn't kick us to the curb. And I'm here today. With my wife and my marriage intact, my family intact, because of you. Well, the skeptical guy sitting there, he's like, you got to be kidding me. I can't believe this just happened. I can't believe that guy just said something like that. I mean, that was a level of vulnerability and a level of depth of relationship that he had never been accustomed to in his entire life. And he was just blown away by the whole thing. He was like, what, what kind of people are these people? I mean, because what he had heard about Christians is that we shoot our wounded, Right? I mean, you sin, we cast you aside. We don't want anything to do with you. He said, why didn't these people condemn this man? Why didn't they tell him to go to hell? He was so blown away at the love and the grace of that community of people that he blurted out. He couldn't keep it within himself. He said, I'm cheating on my wife too. She doesn't know it. Well, she did now. There was a stunned silence in that small group. This is their first time to come. No one knew what to say. No one knew what to do. The wife began to cry. And then she got mad. <laughs> that small group came alongside that young couple. Told them about the grace of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God. And then they said this. We'll walk through this with you. We'll pay for all your counseling. 
We will stand by your side no matter what. And they did. And it went on for months and months and months through the most difficult days of that couple's life. That couple now attends his church still, and they lead their marriage ministry. Because God can take the worst moments of your life and redeem them for something beautiful, for something amazing. Can you imagine if there was truly small groups of people that gathered together and had this kind of depth of friendship? Wouldn't you run to that? Where there's this level of vulnerability where people literally care about each other and walk with each other through the difficulties of life. I mean, what a tremendous gift. And that's what the gift of small groups can be. It's, it's a level of friendship unlike anything you've ever experienced before. But there's so many of us at home and here in this room or at one of our multi-sites, you just don't buy into it. You're like, oh, no, 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 no. Well, we're fine. We, we got this. We can, we can handle this on our own. We hear the stories. We hear them after the fact. We hear about the divorce. The only thing I can think of is, what if they would have just shared their struggle? What, what, what if they would just signed up for that re-engage ministry that we have? Where literally we have seen hundreds of couples be restored when they understand how to relate to each other, how to treat each other with love and respect. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say hundreds of couples are still together today because they went through this ministry. What, what if? What if they would have gotten the help that the church offers? No, 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 we, don't, we, we, we hear about the divorce after it's too late because nobody, nobody wants to let anybody know what's really going on behind their, their closed doors. We hear about the suicide. What if they felt like they could come to this place and there would be people who would listen to them and share with them what incredible value they have because of Jesus? What if we carried their burdens and walked with them through the darkest moments of their life and helped them get the help that they so desperately needed so they could think clearly about today and about their future? But they won't be vulnerable. They won't share it with anybody else. We hear about the prodigal son or daughter who ran away from home. But what if with the very first signs when there was trouble, what if they would have just come and said, you know what, we're in over our heads with this one. And we could use some parenting help. And we really need some help to plug this child into our student ministry. And what if you spent a little time with one of our student pastors and they sat down, they got to know your, your, your student and they connected them with other godly kids and then all of a sudden the whole trajectory of their life would change. Oh, no, 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 we got it. We got it. We got ourselves in this mess, we'll get ourselves out of it, right? We hear about the person who went back to the alcohol who went back to the drugs and I think to myself why didn't they go to living free I mean, why didn't they get vulnerable because the people in living free our recovery ministry most vulnerable people ever they share every one of their sins every one of their struggles because they know that in their weakness when they share their weakness then Jesus is strong 
What if they could have had some friendships from Living Free Ministry? And, and out of those friendships, man, when they felt weak and they felt powerless and they felt like they were going to go back, they could have called somebody. No. Got yourself in the mess. You get yourself out of it. Power up, man. Your willpower will get you through. How's that working out for you? Now, every man in this room is like, I ain't doing this. Because that's how you've been raised. That's, that's the... Whew. The way we see masculinity in our country and around the world is absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? Never be vulnerable. Never share your struggles. Got yourself in the mess. Get yourself out of it. So unlike Jesus. Jesus was a man's man. But when he was hurting, he shared his hurt. When he was troubled... His disciples heard him pray. Jesus was the strongest man to ever walk the face of the earth. And he poured himself into the lives of other people. So what are you going to do with this? Continue as you always have? You can. That's fine. Who are you going to lean on when storms in life brew? Who's going to be there outside your family? If you have one. Who's going to be there to pray for you? To sit with you? To listen to you? Tell me about your friendships. And about this incredible bond that you have with them. Through God's word. And through prayer. You have an opportunity here. To sign up for a small group. And all you got to do is go to the Sagebrush app. Hit the decisions tab. Fill it out. Just write at the very bottom, how can we help you? Just write small groups. And then in January, guess what? We're launching a jillion small groups. And maybe you'll like the people that are in there. I don't know. It's kind of like dating, to be honest with you. Maybe you'll like them. Maybe you'll be like, mm, swipe the other way. I don't know. <laughs> but what if you find the greatest friends you've ever had? And what if you're never faced another day alone again? The church can be a tremendous gift. But you got to open yourself up to everything that it offers. You see, you can be in a crowd of people this large. And not know anybody. Is that the way you want to live your life? Because we were made. For relationships. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father. We know we need this. But the male machismo tells us we don't. God we are so screwed up. We don't even know where real strength comes from. Strength comes from you. Being vulnerable to you and to others. For when we are weak then you are strong. So Lord I pray that we would take a chance that we would sign up. Lord, for couples who are struggling in their marriage, Lord, that they get in that re-engaged ministry. For those who are struggling with addictions and habits, anger and frustration, they're out of control in areas of their life, God, I pray they'd sign up for living free. Lord, I pray for the prodigal sons and daughters, teenagers that are just struggling. 
Lord, that we would get them plugged into our student ministry, into relationships that are going to build these kids up and not tear them down. Lord, if we would just be honest with each other. If we would just say, me too, I've been through it too. We could find strength in the midst of the darkest moments of our life. So Lord, I pray you'd help us to be the church and not just attend one. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.